of Christian millennials agree at least somewhat with the statement that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Uh, other generations also have a number like that, but they're all under 25%. Only with the group surveyed that identified as Christian millennials did you get almost half were concerned about the very idea of sharing one's faith with another person with a different faith and having the expectation that they would change their mind. And so we started kind of poking at this particular statement, uh, this particular question, and we asked this overarching, overriding question, is sharing the gospel condescending and judgmental? Because I feel like that's what the feeling must be. The concern is that there is some ego involved in me saying to you, my view is right, your view is wrong, and I'd like to persuade you on that. And that some people are resistant to that particular kind of conversation. What we've been saying all month, and I hope you've maybe picked up on the thread, the overall theme has been that that mostly represents a misunderstanding of what we're trying to do when we share the gospel. That sometimes that is exactly how the, the gospel is shared. Or let me say it differently. Sometimes people feel like sharing their point of view, saying I'm right and you're wrong and I want to tell you about it, is what it means to share the gospel. And we've said consistently, if that's what you think you're supposed to be out there doing as a Christian, please knock it off. You're not helping us any. That's not what we're about. But in sharing the gospel, there is something grander and better going on that if we understood it better, not only would we do it better, we would feel better about doing it better, that we would understand what's going on and the humility that underlies the entire gospel message would transform all of us. Today I want to reapproach that one more time, but I want to do it with a thought experiment that I think might help us to, to understand a little bit of where the, the misunderstanding comes from. I want us to replace the word gospel in that question with something else that's kind of trivial and see if you can understand where I'm headed. Is sharing the rules of chess condescending and judgmental? If we took it out and said, uh, I need to show you chess, you're doing it wrong, and I started to show you the rules of chess, would that be condescending and judgmental? Now, I think we could all agree it could be if you were condescending and judgmental. If I said, wow, you're really bad at chess, or you don't know how to play chess, what's wrong with you? Are you dumb? I'm really good, let me show you. If that's how you go about it, again, it doesn't matter what you're trying to communicate, if in the process you say, wow, you're dumb, probably judgmental and condescending, please don't do that, okay? On the other hand, again, I think it underlies this, this deeper concern that we ought to have. I've been playing chess with my kids here a lot lately, my boys, and uh, teaching them, and they've been improving at their own pace. Lucas is older, Calvin is younger, and Calvin is just kind of learning the rules of chess. Back before he learned the rules of chess, Calvin still liked to play. So Michelle came over one day to uh, babysit, 
And I warned her that I was going to tell a story today about her, so she's in for it. But she came over to babysit and watched Calvin one day. And Calvin uh, says, hey, you want to play chess? And she said, well, you know, do you know how to play chess? Oh, yeah, I know how to play chess. I watch Dad and, and, and Lucas play all the time. And so they get out the chessboard, and Michelle moves the piece, and Calvin moves his piece wherever he wants and just takes hers off the board. And she says, is that how you play? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I watch all the time. And so for, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, they played these games where she moved a piece, and then Calvin just arbitrarily took one of them until they were all gone and said, I win again. You're not very good at this. Okay. For a lot of people, uh, chess is a very strange game because it is arbitrary. There's a set of rules that tell you how to play chess. It goes back to the ancient Indus River Valley and has been modified through the centuries down through the year. But there are these rules that don't necessarily make any sense on their own. Why does a rook move the way a rook moves? Why does a knight move the way a knight moves? Because it is that way. And until you learn those rules, they make no sense. They're entirely arbitrary. You just have to memorize them. I can see where if you felt like that's how religion works, you would find this idea of sharing the gospel to be an intimidating idea. That if you think religion and morality in particular, morality is, well, we got this shelf and we have all these board games on it. And if you take down Chutes and Ladders or Candyland, you got this set of rules. But if you take down chess, you got this set of rules. And I'm just taking down the game of chess and telling you we're playing chess, that's the way it's going to be, and you need to play by my rules. If that's what, the way we view right and wrong or ethics or religion, then I can see where you're right. If, if we're just telling people our game is better than yours, our arbitrary rules are better than yours, now do it my way, checkmate, then, yeah, absolutely would feel condescending. But what I want to suggest to you today is what Christianity is saying to the world is fundamentally different than that. The teachings of the Bible are not, in fact, like the arbitrary rules of a game. In fact, the rules the Bible gives us for how to live our lives are shockingly familiar, straightforward, intuitive, and simple. Are there complicated things in the Bible? Yes, there are. But when the Bible asks the question, how are you supposed to live? The answers, again, are shockingly straightforward. First text I'll appeal to today comes from Psalm 15. It's a five-verse chapter, very short little psalm. First verse asks a straightforward question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? What's the question? The question is, what do I have to do to come be with you? And the assumption, even behind the psalm, Behind the question is, God is out there in his heaven and I want to be with him and probably I need to impress him in some way. There must be some arbitrary set of acts or labors he wants me to do and then when I do those things, he'll say, well done, Ben, and he'll invite me home. Remember, ancient religions literally have this built in. You're familiar with the guy named Hercules? Hercules uh, was driven mad by the goddess Hera and killed his family. And to atone for that, he was sent to serve a foreign king and to perform the 12 labors of Hercules. 
and it's 12 impossible tasks that only Hercules could do. He had to go like capture uh, Cerberus who guards the gates of hell. He had to clean all the stables of Aegea in one day. He had to go capture this bird and kill this other thing. 12 impossible things that no one could do. That's how you get back into God's good graces. That's the question. What do I have to do, God, to make you happy? Give me the list of impossible things and I'll get started. And what does God say? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, and he does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. A lot, a lot of words there actually, but what is the answer to the question? The answer to the question is, you know, be decent. Whoever does what is right, doesn't even take the time to tell you what that is. It just says, you know right and wrong, do right. Tell the truth, don't lie, don't mistreat people. Tell the truth, don't hurt people, <laughs> is the summary of the first two verses that answer that question. I'm waiting for you must go and climb Mount Everest and you must go and do this, give this much money to your church and you have to do these impossible things. David says, what do I have to do to come to your hill? to come and be with you in your tent. And God says, you know, tell the truth. Don't hurt people. Well, that can't be the end of the chapter. It's not, he keeps going. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He says, recognize good and bad. Doesn't even tell you which they are. He just says, intuitively, you know a vile person a person who behaves badly all the time, who has bad motives, you know what they look like. When you see one, don't be one of them. When you see someone who does good, imitate them, do more of that. Oh, and if you're going to, uh, what's the last bit there? Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. If you make a promise, keep it. Really radical stuff, right? Love good, not evil, keep your promises. And that's the end of the chapter. Five verses, Psalm 15. What do I have to do to climb your holy hill? Tell me what amazing thing I have to do to earn your love. That's not how it works. Be decent. Do the right things, not the wrong things. Be honest, tell the truth, treat people nice. Really radical stuff, isn't it? Well, okay, Ben, you're cherry picking. You picked out some really easy psalm that has things that you wanted to talk about. That's not all there is. Fast forward in time a little bit. Actually, I skipped verse five, didn't I? Let me do verse 5 since I'm there. Who does not put out his money at interest, does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Again, don't be greedy. Don't take advantage of people. Really elaborate stuff. Move forward a few centuries, and Micah the prophet is going to ask the same question. Micah wants to know, Israel, what do we have to do to make God happy? Here's how he words it. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? What do I need to do to make God happy? I know I've sinned. I know I've done things I shouldn't. What do I have to do? And he starts rhetorically by giving all the, re the good religious answers. Would you like a sacrifice? And then it begins to sound a little bit like green eggs and ham. Would you like a sacrifice? Would you like two sacrifices? 
would you like 10,000 sacrifices? If I gave you my firstborn, would that do it? And he just keeps escalating. If I gave you, and he starts with, if I gave you a sacrifice, he ends with, if I gave you the thing in the world most dear to me, if I gave you my firstborn child, would that do it? Or anything in between? Just let me know. I'll try. And the answer, memorably, is verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It took longer to ask the question than it did to answer it. He says, you kind of already know. Actually, that's the problem. The problem is we kind of already know and we didn't really do very well at it. See, I'm trying to make it sound like it's easy. Be decent people, be nice, be kind. Turns out those are incredibly hard and we're really bad at them. And since we're so bad at being kind, being humble, being fair, we go to God and say, can you, I don't know, give us a second list. How about instead of being nice to people, I have to climb a mountain. I could probably do that. Isn't that funny? We are absolute failures at simple, intuitive goodness. And we go to God and say, give us something else. We'll try that. And God comes back and says, no, I told you what to do. Justice, kindness, humility. Do those things. You'll be fine. And it's us that are disappointed that it's not more complicated. Well, what about Jesus? Move forward to the New Testament. Nothing I'm saying today is surprising you. I don't know if you've thought about it in quite these terms, but everything you're hearing today is familiar. What did Jesus say about morality? I mean, if you just back up and say, what are the teachings of Jesus Christ about how to live your life? And you start writing down the things you remember. You'd come to statements like this. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Golden rule. Or for those of us that learned it years ago, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? That's the rule. What's the teaching of Jesus Christ? Fairness for all. And then climb a mountain? Nope. Just fairness for all. Or how about this uh, occasion in Matthew 22, where again, someone literally asked the question, what is the thing we have to do? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? That's a very similar question. I mean, for, asked for a different reason. But a very similar question to, what do I have to do to ascend to your holy hill? What do I have to do to make God happy? Tell me, it's a big old book we've got with the scrolls and Isaiah and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. What do I have to do to make God happy? What's the most important thing? And again, God picks out, uh, through Jesus Christ, really radical stuff. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Tell you what, I'll give you two. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love others. And that's it. Again, we are the ones disappointed with it. We are the ones who say, give us something else. We're really bad at that. Give us something convoluted to make us feel good about ourselves when we figure it out. We would rather be playing chess. But it's God who turns to us time and time again and say, actually, what I've asked of you is pretty straightforward. It's pretty consistent. It's not really elaborate. It's what you intuitively knew to do all along. In fact, this is a point that Paul makes in the book of Romans. Paul is talking about the unrighteousness of humanity and our general moral failures. He spends chapter on chapter on it. 
And then in chapter 2, he talks about the heathen, the pagan, the Gentile. And he says, but here's the funny thing about those heathens, those pagans, those Gentiles. That's us, by the way. He says people have the basics of morality written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul says you already know more often than not what's right and wrong. Intuitively, you have a moral sense buried inside of you. Now, most of human life, the the end of that verse is the fun part, right? Most of human life is us trying to either tell ourselves we're terrible because we haven't done things we were supposed to do, or justify the terrible things we did and tell ourselves that they're okay. He says, but the problem wasn't that you didn't know. It was written on your hearts, your conscience bears witness, and even your conflicting thoughts accuse you or excuse you. But you know, you know, this isn't chess, this is not even checkers, you know, you know how to treat people, you know what to do, and you know you haven't done it. That's the crazy thing that Christianity teaches. First of all, it says, no, I'm not here to give you some unique and bizarre set of rules that only if you learn and follow these can you make God happy. The first thing Christianity says is, you pretty much already know what to do. Yeah, there are days where morality is gray and confusing, and it takes the wisdom of Solomon to figure out the nuance, and, and I don't know what to do. But most of the rest of the time, I know if that was a good thing to do or not. And I know I did it anyway. I know. But not only have I not lived up to God's standard, truth be told, I haven't lived up to mine. Great line from C.S. Lewis some years ago, Christ did not come to preach any brand new morality. The golden rule of the New Testament is a summing up of what everyone at bottom had always known to be right. Really great moral teachers never do introduce new moralities. It's quacks and cranks who do that. Lewis says, I can sum up Christian morality in in simplicity and say Jesus basically said things you already knew. What the Bible tells us is that we have not lived up to that standard. Not that we haven't known it, that we haven't lived up to it. Christian morality reminds us that we have not lived up to the morals we already know. Or as Paul and the prophets would say, none is righteous, no, not one simply says we haven't lived up to it, not that we haven't known it. And so what is it then that Christianity is trying to share with the world? If it's not a new set of rules, if it's not a new game of chess, if it's not an arbitrary system and if you get it exactly right you please God, if it's not 12 labors of Hercules, if it's not any of those things, what is Christianity actually telling us? Same chapter of Romans, Paul says it like this, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christianity does not teach anything new about morality. Christianity teaches something new about forgiveness. You already know too much about morality. You already know what you are and you already know what you've done. 
Sometimes we need a reminder because we talk ourselves out of it. But by and large, you know. Christianity says you don't need one more person telling you you're wrong. We will. But for what it's worth, you didn't need that. What are we going to do about it? You remember Micah's question back in Micah chapter 6? He says, do you want a sacrifice? Do you want a thousand sacrifice? Do you want 10,000 sacrifice? Do you want my firstborn son? And God said, no. And the New Testament, he says, because I'm going to give you mine. What Christianity offers is what we could never give. It gives us forgiveness for those things that we've done wrong. Is sharing that condescending? Is it a new and arbitrary game we want the world to play? It is the simple message that we are sinners in need of the grace of God. And that's what he's offering. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Father, help us to remember and never forget the staggering simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prevent us from finding new ways to be condescending towards others. Prevent us from finding new ways to excuse ourselves from the things we know we ought to do. Help us to be honest with ourselves first and then with others. To know what we ought to do. To know that only your son ever did it. And accept by faith in him the beginning of a new life, forgiven by your love. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.